Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to the Curzon Film Podcast. This week we're putting Marie Colvin biopic A Private War on the front line and talking to Pod ruler Joe Cornish about his royally ambitious Arthurian adventure, The Kid Who Would Be King. I'm Jake Cunningham, and I've assembled my Knights of the Round Pod table, built originally so that all who sat around it were equal and trustworthy. But alas, I've ended up with you lot instead. And joining me is Lady Kelly Powell. Hello. Sir Stephen of Ryder. Hello. And Sam. <laughs> <laughs> That's like Merlin, though. Oh, yeah. Okay, cool. All right. Thanks. Uh, as well as hearing from Joe Cornish and these lovely folks, we've also had a chat with Christina Lamb. She's the chief foreign correspondent for the Sunday Times. And she previously worked with Marie Colvin and gave us her own unique insights into her life and a private war as well. Kelly, would you mind telling us a little bit about this one? So Rosamund Pike stars as uh, Marie Colvin, who was the foreign correspondent for the Sunday Times. And the film is not a typical biopic, but it sort of follows the 10 years leading up to her death. Um, and yeah, it's, a, it's quite an uh, intimate look into her sort of psyche and how war affected her and explores the limits between bravery and bravado. Yes, so we sent our very own Ryan Hewitt over to the Sunday Times offices in London Bridge to speak to Christina Lamb. Hello to Christina Lamb. Thank you very much for joining us here on the Curzon Film Podcast. It's a pleasure. Um, we're here to talk about A Private War, which is a new film about the life of a war correspondent, which is your line of work, and you've seen the film. And I wondered what your first thoughts of the film were and its depiction of that kind of career. So I thought the film was very harrowing. It's not easy to see somebody that you worked with and who was a friend um, going through what she went through and ultimately being killed in Syria. Uh, I thought that the depictions of the war were actually much better than I imagined. It was really quite true to life. Um, made me jump at the <laughs> gunfire. and. Um, I think that some of the the dialogue 
I'm not sure that journalists are quite as worthy as Murray appeared to be in the film. I'm not sure that we do really genuinely talk about the importance of what we do, but I understand that it was necessary for the film. And you mentioned that you used to know and work with Marie Colvin, and Rosamund Pike plays her in this film. And how was that watching a depiction of Marie? And it was it, did it feel very true to who she was and her character? What was the most astonishing thing for me and some other colleagues who I went to see the film with, who knew Marie well too, was actually just how much Rosamund Pike had captured Marie. I mean, in the first 10 minutes, uh, I think we all sat there almost stunned because it felt like you were watching Marie. She, the voice, um, the sort of slightly angular way of moving that Marie had and that very kind of gravelly voice from smoking lots of <laughs> cigarettes. Um, you know, it, it, it was Marie. It was un uncanny watching. Um, whenever I watch this well, when I watch this film, whenever I watch news reports and I see the work that you do, I, I marvel at the, what courage it must take to put yourself in that line of danger. And I wonder if your perception of danger changes when it is your everyday reality and not just something that you have to imagine being a possibility. Well, I think the first thing to say is, you know, we all still get scared <laughs> in those places. You wouldn't be normal if you didn't. Um, and also probably places are not as dangerous as you imagine from outside because when you watch a TV report or a movie about a war, you're seeing the most dramatic parts of it. And actually there are long parts where nothing much is happening. And also in all of these places, in all these years of war in Syria, for example, now in its eighth year, um, you know, many people have fled, but many people still live there, still work, still get married, still send their children to school. So, you know, there is sort of normal life as, as much as it can be going on. And in a way, that's what I find most fascinating about covering these places. What is it like to be trying to do all of those things when all hell is breaking loose around you? Because I suppose that is the really the untold side of war that we often don't see. We hear all about the fighting and the maneuvers and claiming of new territory, but we don't hear so often, unless someone like yourself goes there to tell these stories, about what's happening to the people, the civilians on the ground. I think that's why most people who do this job do it because, I mean, some people talk about it being addictive and, yeah, I'm not going to lie, there, you know, it's addictive, I suppose, the surviving the danger bit is addictive um, and sometimes it can be very difficult coming home afterwards and having a normal life, so it can be difficult to get excited about you know, buying a new carpet or something like that when you've just spent weeks dodging bullets <laughs> every day. Uh, it does put things in perspective, seeing people, you know, who don't know when they go out in the morning if they're going to come back again in the evening. And I think, you know, that's what Marie was trying to show in Homs when she was killed, was what was happening to those people that had no way of getting their story out really otherwise. Um, and how do you decide where you need to go and how far you need to go? There's a line in the film where the Sunday Times editor, Sean Ryan, says somewhere is too dangerous, but the response is everywhere is too dangerous. So how do you make that call? I don't remember ever being told by my editor that it was somewhere was too dangerous. 
But I, well, I mean, what has happened in the last 30 years I've been doing this job is that um, we've become targets as foreign correspondents in the way that we never used to be. And so that's changed the job. And, you know, I've had colleagues who've been kidnapped, who've ended on videos being beheaded. And so that you know, makes you really think twice or you'd be mad to go into some of these places where that's likely to happen. Um, in your TED Talk, which is called Finding Hope in Dark Places, Women in War, um, you mentioned, well, you say that you feel that women are the true heroes of war. And for those who haven't yet seen your talk, could you just expand a little bit on that and the things that have led you to that? that, just that? Yeah, I feel very strongly that people often, when they th think about war, think about the men fighting <laughs> and maybe being a woman covering this. I'm much more interested in, in the people trying to live through that. And to me, the real heroes are the people that are somehow in the midst of all of this craziness and danger are still managing to feed, protect, educate, shelter their children or elderly. And that's almost always the women doing that. And to me, you know, they're incredibly heroic. I can't imagine being in those situations like the women under siege in Aleppo where they were you know literally they had no food everything was being blown up around them and they were having to like tear down doors and window frames to um, burn in order to have heat and making pancakes from just any kind of vegetation that they could find with flour and they had nothing else um, you know, telling your children that you have absolutely nothing to give them and trying to protect them when all of that's happening around, I think is really awe-inspiring. And when you meet people like this in, in war zones, do you find them generally forthcoming or are they at all hesitant to speak to you and tell you their story? Do they want to tell you their story? Generally, in these places, I think people, you know, want the world outside to know. They can't understand why these things are happening and no one's doing anything about it. And sometimes that can be difficult because they feel that they have told you or other journalists and yet these things are still happening. So to me, that's one of the hardest things about the job when you are doing reporting on the things and nothing changes and you get messages from the people that you've reported on saying, you know, saw your story, what difference does it make to me? And that's, you know, really heart-wrenching. And there's there's a line, in fact, in the film where we hear someone, Marie, asks herself, in covering war, can we really make a difference? And you've touched on it there, but is that is that a question you ask yourself? Is it something that you've found an answer for that inspires you to carry on? I don't think any of us would do it if you didn't hope that you could make a difference. You want people to see these things and injustices that are going on and then do something about it. And you hope that somehow public opinion will be mobilized, and like Martha Gellhorn, who is a great heroine for many of us female correspondents, um, talked about public opinion being like a kind of flight of angels that would then come in and, and change things. And uh, I mean, sadly, that doesn't very often happen. And also you see in all these wars since 9-11, the same mistakes being made again and again. And that can be very frustrating when you feel like we've written about it and people should know what's happening.
So um, remind me when you started your career, that was around 30 years ago? Was yeah, it? I started in the late 80s when the Russians were in Afghanistan. And in the time since then and in events that have happened since, has there been dramatic changes in the way that you do your job? There's been two enormous changes. One, it's good and one is bad. The good one is communication. So now when I started, there was no mobile phones, no internet. Uh, so it was very difficult to communicate. I was in Afghanistan, there were no phones at all. When I was in Pakistan, um, back out of Afghanistan, I would be sending my copy by telex, which most people don't even know what it is now. There's long kind of strip that goes into a machine or having to get an international operator and get them to put a call through. So it was a really laborious business. I would say 90% of my job was logistics, finding a way to get the story back. And also photographers would have to find people that would take the film back to go to airports and try and get the film on a plane. All of that is so different now. I can send a story anywhere from the top of a mountain in the Hindu Kush, from a desert in Iraq, straight away. Sometimes it's not so good because it means people don't have time to think about what's happening in process. And so sometimes, you know, mistakes get made or it's easier to be victims of propaganda. But the, the thing that's happened at the same time, which isn't good, is the danger and how we've become targets in a way that we weren't. And that, uh, that's something we've seen in recent news uh, stories with journalists being targeted directly. And it's a line in the film um, we see is a moment when Marie stands up uh, during a, combat zone, uh, a moment of conflict and she says, uh, don't shoot, I'm a reporter. And then later on we hear that she's been made a target. And I wonder, what are there rules of engagement when you're out in the field? Are these things that are adhered to in some regions and not in others? Well, we are supposed to be protected under the Geneva Convention that we're there as objective observers and civilians, and we're not supposed to be targeted. But I'm afraid that a lot of the terrorist groups in recent years have seen that they can get more headlines from killing a journalist or capturing a journalist than they can from killing a soldier. So uh, I'm afraid that that's become more common. I mean, the resolve it must take to carry on is quite remarkable. Uh, is if there was anybody who was listening who wants to go into a career of journalism and foreign correspondency in particular, is there anything that you would say to them, some <laughs> advice or something well, they should really I mean understand? First of all, I you know I love the job. I've never been bored. It's a great privilege to go to places where you know history is. It sounds cliched, but <laughs> history is being made, and you know am amazing people that you meet and really. And um, that was one of the themes, I suppose, in my TED talk, that in these darkest places you meet the most um, people shining the brightest light. And that never ceases to amaze me and keep me going. And I've been lucky to work with some really inspiring people like Malala, like Najin, who is a Syrian refugee who crossed from Aleppo to Germany in a wheelchair because she has cerebral palsy. So uh, all of that's a great privilege. I think in terms of what you need to be a good correspondent, you need to be uh, have a lot of curiosity <laughs> and a lot of determination. I don't take no for an answer. So you wouldn't trade it for a desk job any day? <laughs> no. <laughs> Christina Lamb, thank you so much for your time. Okay. Yeah, I think this is a really incredible film. Um, I think you know we've seen Rosamund Pike take on many forms throughout her career, from Die Another Day to Gone Girl and I think and what we did on our holiday 
and what we did on our holiday. Um, And I really think what she does here so well is capture the kind of the psychological burden that Colvin placed on herself, not necessarily one that she had placed on her by anyone else. It's really something that Colvin felt this kind of this um, this calling to tell these people's stories. So the film opens with this title card saying that between 1985 and uh, 2012, Colvin covered every single conflict in definitely in the Middle East, um, maybe in major conflict in the world. Um, She was a war correspondent and she, you know, she wasn't happy just sitting in the office typing away. She needed to be there with not just with the soldiers, but she was interested in the people who actually suffered during the war, like the civilians and the refugees. And she would go out there pretty much alone, um, right to the front line. And, you know, Marie Colvin very famously had an eye patch because she lost an eye in an explosion in Sri Lanka because she got so close to the conflict. And the film, yeah, tracks through the kind of the last, like Kelly said, the last 10 years of her life. 12, maybe. Maybe 12. But as she's being told so many times by people, you know, you shouldn't be getting too close to this. You don't have to. No one's asking you to. And she's saying, that's the thing. No one's asking me to. But people still need to see these stories and to see how these people's lives has been affected. Yeah, it sort of, it, it, it chunks it, it kind of does the three major ones that she covered. She did Sri Lanka where she lost her eye. That's very early on. Um, and that I think is a great motif for her, for her um, life. I think because yeah, she she sort of put herself in these situations that she didn't necessarily need to be in, but she did it for the story and she did it for the people she was covering. But she suffered a great personal loss because of it. And I think on one hand, you know, the film does go through those biopic beats. You know, it's how did she get the eye patch? How did she meet uh, the photographer Paul Comroy, who was very much her sort of right-hand man in all these, um, in telling all these stories. And, you know, it, it tracks the beats leading up to her death. But I think more than anything, this is a very dark psychological character study. Heinemann, I think, is fascinating. I, I'm always really curious about people like uh, like James Marsh, who moved very much from documentary or to... Bart Layton. Yeah, or Bart Layton as well. Um, so James Marsh did Man on Wire, and you would have recently seen King of Thieves or The Mercy of His. Uh, and, yeah, Bart Layton, The Imposter, and now American Animals. Yeah, uh, it's really interesting to me, actually. I didn't realise that he came from a documentary background, but that makes a lot of sense. And I think I haven't seen the film, but does it give it a sense of kind of urgency that in the war scenes that you wouldn't maybe find in a typical kind of biopic? Yeah, there's definitely some documentary style going on here. I think, you know, in the war scenes, there's it feels very much like someone on the ground who's used to filming on the ground and who's used to filming with all these distractions going on around them. And you really get that feeling and you know there's things as well like a lot of the uh, sort of background characters are real refugees so he really wants to get a sort of a sense of realism in this which only a documentary kind of observational style influenced the fiction elements Mm. of it as well yeah leave the camera rolling exactly yeah totally and then but i think what the film does really well is use non-documentary tactics because it it really shows how colvin suffered through major ptsd um, throughout her the later years of her life um, and you know it does that through using like flashbacks and fantasies and nightmares and visions and I didn't realize that she had such bad PTSD until yeah. I saw the film and I think he does something that maybe you wouldn't expect a documentary maker to do to tell that to show that side of her to show her what she's struggling through psychologically and to show the sort of subjectivity of her mind and along with uh, Spotlight the post it's feels like very much 
uh, at the moment, these are stories that are seeking out the importance of journalistic integrity, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, absolutely right. And I think, you know, especially in this kind of, you know, journalism really has to fight to be relevant with, uh, you know, you hear all the time, oh, no one's, pe- no one's reading newspapers anymore. And then you hear the president of the world's most powerful country decrying all media to be fake. So, yeah, what's this and Spotlight and the Post do is show, no, actually, you know, we really do need journalists to be the ones to tell us these stories. This one, for people that are curious, Matthew Heinemann was, uh, was I can't remember whether he was Oscar nominated or Oscar winner, First City of Ghosts. Um, and so if, if you've seen that and are curious to see what that director would bring to a traditional narrative feature, maybe one for you. Um, as we've already mentioned, Spotlight, The Post, yeah. um, those kind of films where people might be interested in that journalistic process as well. Yeah. Along with being a psychological thriller, I think there's a lot to get into here. Yeah, definitely. If you're a fan of those kind of journalist films, I think this is definitely one for you. Mm. I also want to point out that there was a documentary a few months ago, Under the Wire, about um, Marie Colvin and uh, Paul Comroy who is a photographer, who in the film is played by Jamie Dornan, mm. who is really good as well. Mm, yeah, like, I didn't is. expect him to be, I didn't think it was well casting before, but he's perfect. Yeah. Yeah. And he seems to really believe in the role. He's like yeah. going out on the press he and is, he's, yeah. he's like, he thinks it's really great. Yeah, so Under the Wire is on Cousin Home Cinema as well, okay. so you can do a really nice double bill. They both, I think they both inform each other really well. Where are we going? Fallujah. <laughs> we can't just drive to Fallujah. Why not? Because we'll be targeted. <laughs> Are you scared? No. Good. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Now, before uh, Sam and I started our student radio show that I think dozens of people listened to, uh, uh, there was actually uh, another pair of friends who like to talk about rubbish over the airwaves can you believe that that's that happened <laughs> uh yeah uh, so the adam and joe show was a staple at the bbc six music and until joe went off to make his debut feature attack the block somehow it has been eight years since then uh but he's finally plucked the camera from the stone and made a new one Stephen, what is this yeah about? and you know eight years is a long time but uh in my opinion it was definitely worth the wait i think um the kid who would be king uh kind of revolves around a young boy named alex who uh discovers a uh, a sword on a building site after being kind of chased away by some bullies from school um and obviously this is kind of leading into a what seems to be a very kind of 
familiar narrative uh, surrounding uh, King Arthur and the, and the Knights of the Round Table. But um, I think what Joe does with this film is he turns around this, this chosen one narrative on its head and he creates this whole kind of new mythology and builds this whole new world about this young kid who kind of figures out he, he becomes responsible for protecting the world from Morgana, um, who uh, is obviously a, a descendant or a half-sister, I think, of King Arthur. And um, it's all set in kind of contemporary Britain, which is a really interesting kind of uh, locale to to tell this kind of story in. Um, we get the estates that we got from Attack the Block. We get the familiar kind of British family uh, family drama locations, but we also get these beautiful wide sweeping vistas of kind of rural England too. And this story, as he puts together his his knights of the round table and, and sets off on this quest is uh, is is beautiful to look at as well as kind of thrilling to uh, to partake in all right and you were lucky enough to sit down and chat to him all about it let's hear joe cornish and stephen Riley. um so i'm here with uh joe cornish uh talking about his new film the kid who would be king thank you for joining us today joe thanks for having me wonderful um so the first thing I kind of want to talk about is is this word fantasy that's being thrown around a lot yeah. uh, to describe this film because it obviously falls within that genre. Um, but I feel like it's also a film about fantasizing and about what is a fantasy. And I just wanted to know your kind of relationship with the genre. And also, did you want to make a film that toyed with those conventions? Yeah, gosh, that's a big question. It, it's de- Well, it's uh, fantasy on all sorts of levels. It's a, it's a wish fulfillment film for kids. So it's about a kid that discovers the sword and the stone and gets thrown into this adventure so it's also a weird wish fulfillment for me because i thought of it when i was 12 oh really yeah and it's it's so it's a sort of dream i had of a movie come true for me a thousand years later it's also about a very famous fantasy legend the legend of king arthur but it's not a period telling of it it's transposing the most famous elements of that myth into the modern day um, and it's also its lead character is a boy who knows a lot about Arthurian myth. His dad gave him this book. But part of the journey he goes on is to discover that legends and fantasies need to be rewritten for new generations. So so it's a, it's a story about stories and it's a fantasy story about fantasies. It's about what happens when the fantasy becomes reality and, and, and also that fantasies need to be malleable you 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 write your own fantasies and the the world is a weird fantasy isn't it being alive is a peculiar hallucination full of all sorts of odd things and then we hand down through generations these narrative versions of our experience these heightened you know twisted surreal interpretations of life we hand them down to generations and, and, and one of the things this story is about is to tell young people that they can write their own mythology Mm. and that they don't need to be bound by the mess or the stories that adults have made or told they can write them anew i think that's what i found really refreshing about the film is we all love we all love a gritty a gritty reboot a gritty remake but Mm. um what was so refreshing about this is that it is its own story it's not being shackled by the time period or Mm. by you know um, a certain look that an actor has to have um mm. you were able to kind of build this new world um is that something that you found refreshing as a filmmaker well i'm not a, to be perfectly honest i'm not a massive king arthur fan mm-hmm. or obsessive i love holy grail the python movie that's the one you jumped to <laughs> yeah well that and um john borman's excalibur that i'm from the I'm generation a big fan of that too absolutely so yeah. i was the correct age to get 
VHS is uncertified. So when I was 12, the VHS boom happened. There was no certification. The legislation was late to the party. So there was this amazing three or four year period when a child of my age could bunk off school or go to a mate's house. I didn't have a VHS player. I had to go to my friend Daniel Pietroni's house and his mum wouldn't have got home from work. So we would pop to the video shop, rent Zombie Flesh Eaters, The Exorcist, Alan Parker's Fame, John Borman's Excalibur (laughs) and have our tiny minds melted. I I see a lot of uh, Morgana from John Borman's Excalibur, I think, in your film as well. Um, Yes. It was something I wanted to actually, that that leads into something I wanted to talk to you about, because my favorite aspect of the film is the fact that it is, uh, in in part, genuinely scary. And Mm. as a kid, as I'm sure from this story you were just telling, I loved to be scared. Mm. And obviously adults get a little bit frightened about their kids, you know, being exposed to that kind of stuff. But I think this toes this really great line, especially the bedroom scene Mm. uh, with the fallen knights and Mm. a lot of Morgana's um, scenes. Mm. Genuinely scary, genuinely unnerving. Is that something you had in mind when making the film? Well, we had to be careful about that. And we tested the film. You know, a film uh, on this scale, you test very thoroughly to children and you, you, you make sure you're treading that line carefully. And we would test it to cinemas with 400 kids. And there would be one in 400 seven-year-old that it would be too much for uh-huh. uh, but the vast majority of kids are fine you know the m- six seven if they're fragile but they might be freaked out but uh, you know i remember being freaked out by the wicked witch in snow white me too by bambi's mum being killed um i found darth vader in star wars very scary i found ghostbusters scary i remember being pretty frightened by the library scene in ghostbusters Absolutely. at the beginning so I don't think it's a bad thing. It's a completely bloodless film. There's no bad language. It's there's absolutely not. You know, it's a certificate PG. It's uh, it's completely family friendly. But 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 the villain is a villain. The villain is a little bit scary, and the stakes have got to be real. Otherwise, there'd be no sense of adventure. And I'm not giving anything away to say that good wins in the end. And it wins in a particularly hopefully inspiring way because it wins through kids all putting their differences aside, teaming up forming an army, dressing in armor and having this massive battle against undead knights. And, and that's what's so engaging about it is that if you were to make a film that didn't have any stakes, um, then, you know, kids aren't going to be engaged with it. They're not going to be engaged with the more kind of integral, important, right. dramatic parts of the story. And there's so much meta comedy in kids' films. You know, the majority of kids' films now are, are, are animation based on either superheroes or toy brands or very famous books. And then it's all superhero movies. You don't really get live action movies starring kids for kids anymore. And then when you do, they're very self-aware and everyone's wisecracking all the time. And there's no real sense of danger. Um, So it's good to have a sense of danger. I remember it from movies I watched when I was growing up, like The Black Stallion, where that kid's shipwrecked and you really feel he's in real danger. Or E.T., the cops are drawing guns on Elliot and his pals. So I think it's actually good for yes. kids to no, have I, that element. I couldn't agree more. And I think you went into um, you went into schools to kind of before the film in pre-production yeah. to talk to kids about um, you know what they knew about the legend and things like that. How did that help the process when you were making the film? Well, it 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 taught us how much kids know, and it showed us they knew Merlin pretty much from the BBC thing. A lot of them had seen the Disney Sword in the Stone. They knew the basic mechanic of the sword in the stone they didn't know the full consequences of drawing it 
they understood it a bit like they understand Thor's hammer as just a sort of a sort of t- t- totem a talisman that imbues you with power or like you have to be of a certain kind of sensibility in order to take the yeah. in order to pick up the hammer well they're very educated in the chosen one narrative yeah. which is something that we're trying to move away from and i think actually quite a few you see it in last jedi and spider-verse they're all they're all i think rightly trying to move away from the chosen one narrative and this sort of hereditary privilege thing but the other really interesting thing talking talking to kids about the sword and the stone was how it led them to a conversation about power and monarchy and what it means to be a king or a queen and how relevant the role of the royal family is. And and, and they were very politically articulate, very fast and very engaged. And so it encouraged me to make a film that was actually dealing with the notion of, well, children sort of own the world in a Whitney Houston kind of a way <laughs> do you know what I mean I think that I think that that's great that you f- I, I mean I certainly feel that as well that you can take this film you can show it to a um a, a young audience they're not just going to take away a historical mythology from it there's there's actual kind of thematic uh you know things going through it including I felt a lot of a lot of things about building bridges between yeah not just people but between young and old and and history and present and things like that um as well as the division in the country uh, that, that the movie takes place in well I, you know before i give you my answer i would stress that this is a big fun entertaining action adventure movie hundred oh, percent. it's yeah. also uh the, the there are elements of the arthurian myth that you can't ignore so he, he arrives in a britain that's broken lost and leaderless where the tribes are warring with each other there's no civility, there's no leadership, and that's what King Arthur did. He's the kind of British origin myth. He unites the country around a round table, so he's not at the head of the table. He's he's a de facto leader who just brings the most able people around him. Uh, and so when you transpose that myth to modernity, you're dealing with the same, however fun and funny and fast-moving and spectacular you make it, you do have these little socio-political currents running through it. And what better opportunity than to talk about the importance of civility, to in- talk about the chivalric code, which is about honouring those you love, persevering, refraining from wanton offence, these basic moral goals that are actually quite useful, I think, and have maybe been forgotten a bit, certainly in adult discourse in the world, that kids are probably quite aware of, you know, on social media and stuff. I, I, you know, I know that if you're nine or ten, you're not ignorant to the fact that adults are pretty coarse and idiotic <laughs> sometimes you know at a high level but i love that i love that about the film is that we do talk about these these ideas of chivalry mm. but they're framed in such a fun engaging way mm. um especially i think um from uh from angus imry mm. uh playing playing merlin who just has this incredible energy about him and charisma H- how did you find this uh, this guy well, that was down to our brilliant casting lady, Jessica Renane, who cast the young people in the film. And um, I originally envisaged the part to be much younger. I thought Merlin would also be a school kid the same age as um, the other actors, you know, 13, 14. But Jessica said, oh, it's a shame he's young because there's this actor, Angus Imry. <laughs> He'd be so good. He's just a little bit too old. I s- Can I show him to you? I said, okay, bring him in. And he turned up at the audition dressed in an undersized school uniform, which he, which the character wears in the movie for a bit. And he, and he did the speech that Merlin does where he stands up on a table in the, in the lunch hall and tries to recruit all the school kids to Alex's side. And he, he just immediately, I thought, okay, fine. 
he looks 16 <laughs> will age the part up slightly <laughs> he's amazing and it's it's always such a relief when that happens because you think great okay that's in the bag it, it really it's his physicality though that makes the part in the end isn't it it's his yeah. kind of lankiness and his like long neck and his wild eyes it doesn't you end up not really thinking about his age yeah plus the fact he can do magic he can yeah he he's can, so good yeah. and and in fact all the u.s reviews are so gratifying and exciting for him because he's 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 absolutely a, a breakout in the film yeah. um he's and he deserves it and i just wanted to ask as well about um another incredible part of the film that had me like locked in straight away the animation at the start mm. um absolutely beautiful i could watch the whole short film on that animation it would have been incredible cool. um how did that come about who did you work with in regards to that? that's the same company that did the animation in a monster calls they're called glassworks they're based in barcelona shout out to javier and belen and their dog piston and all the animators <laughs> there if you look at the book it's by piston publishing and that's the lead one of the lead animators dogs um, but yeah, that was always the idea really was to start with this primer that communicated the basic tropes of Arthurian legend to the audience. Sorry, burping. <laughs> and then there's a through line in the movie that the boy has this book that he got from his dad. Uh, and like we said at the beginning of this discussion, he's very invested in the old version of the legend. So the idea was to start the movie like inside that book with all those characters and that story c come come to life. Um, yeah, and they did a they did a beautiful job. I think. Yeah, I completely I completely agree with you. It's absolutely stunning. Um, so I guess lastly, I wanted to say there's a there's a point in the movie. You might have already touched on this already, but there's a point in the movie where Alex uh, says, "I'm not in the mood for magic," mm. and it's um, a really kind of at the it, at that moment a really striking example of a of a young person who's kind of lost hope and mm -hmm. has become very cynical. Um, but do you think the film maybe acts as a reminder for young people that they can still affect the world around them and that they're still, uh, they, if they have resolve and ideas, that there's still hope that they can, you know, change things around, turn things around? Yeah, that's very much the ambition. Um, and yeah, he's, his character is sort of on the cusp of childhood and adulthood at that age when, you know, in the past you've been told all these stories and you've maybe kept yourself going by existing in a world of play and fantasy. And then you go up a level at school and people start talking about exams and your future and you start looking at the reality of of what you might do in your life and you start going, oh God, you know, <laughs> this might be tougher than I thought. And yeah, so that's very much his sort of act one sort of, sort of moment where he sets the stall out for what he thinks then. But then the rest of the movie is a journey to show him that if he is a good person, makes the right choices, turns his enemies into allies, follows these basic tenets of the chivalric code, <laughs> that he can fight against, you know, selfishness and greed and avarice and elevate himself and his pals and the world. It's just, it's just a sort of optimistic message, weirdly in the same way that Attack the Block was, I hope. Um, oh, I can definitely see To a young audience yeah. to tell them that the world is theirs. You know, it's uh, not for people like me it's for them now oh, i agree and this film is for them as well i think and yeah. if we can get younger audiences into the cinema to see this i think it's gonna you know really really hit home with them I hope um, so. well thank you for joining us today joe thank it's you very much no worries thank you to learn the basics of swordcraft you will need a weapon each a simple duplication spell for metallic objects should suffice Now, you have an army to fight, 
A demon to slay, a country to save. So let us begin. Around this this lovely round pod table, Stephen, it's only yourself and I that have been lucky enough to see this one so far. Um, and I'm really excited about it because it feels completely different than what I think. Not that I'm going out to the cinema and only seeking out kids' films, but I feel like this is a very it's a straightforward film for kids and i feel like we haven't seen that in a long time no and interviewing joe as well you could tell that he wanted to make this film for kids too which i think is so important in an era where we're getting so many films that are kind of wanting to be kind of uh for adults and for children and some and a lot of the time when that happens it kind of just it floats too far over to one side well, and it's just this homogenization of the cinema experience making something for everyone but really it's for no one <laughs> yeah absolutely but the thrill in 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 kids seeing this is that parents or brothers or sisters can take their uh, their family to see this film and enjoy it along with them um and uh, i think that i think that joe has got such a great kind of sense of what kids are looking for in films because he doesn't sanitize this kind of story and he doesn't make it boring you know i, I spoke to him in the interview about this but there are parts of it that are like just the right amount of scary, just the right amount of frightening for you to kind of get your... I, 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 there's, there's one scene in the film where um, an undead knight kind of comes to, to take Excalibur off Alex in his bedroom. And it's a scary scene. It's a tense scene. But it's not so much that it's going to give kids nightmares. It's just when you're in there in the moment, the design of this character and you know the, the way he shoots it like a kind of thriller... It's great, and it works. And I think that there's a lot of excitement to be had in a film that's willing to take those tiny little risks. Yeah, and in the last eight years since Attack the Block, I mean, there has been a lot of things that Cornish has been attached to. I mean, there has been a Mission Impossible. There's uh, been a Star Trek. Yeah, uh, there was... There's def- definitely been a Marvel. Yeah, oh, well, he was, he's the writer on Ant-Man. Uh, then he's there's definitely Star Wars conversations. And yeah. then he's, a, he's appeared in a Star Wars. Um, and it was all this linking him to other properties um and this feels like maybe with king arthur it was a way of him kind of scratching that itch of wanting to play with characters that are in the cultural uh, realm but that he can really do his own thing oh yeah for sure if you if this is not a kind of like off the cuff project for joe cornish this is something that he's put so much work into and so much research into you know he was traveling to schools he was asking children about their kind of familiarity with with king arthur and was surprised to find out that they only knew bits and bobs about it when he was growing up it was such a kind of uh, present story in his in his childhood so i think for him it's it's a passion project and it shows every every moment of the film shows that it's a passion project um he's put together this kind of like really interesting cast of child actors um some that shine a lot brighter than others i think um, yeah i think that's maybe the weaker point is that some of the acting here is a bit ropey but you you kind of allow it for that because well, it, is... it gives it that charm yeah. you know the charm we were talking about like you i was comparing it to things like the queen's nose or aquila that we used to see on kind of the bbc and i'm positive that joe has seen these things as well i'm positive because there's a sensibility there of like even though the acting might be a bit ropey at points i don't think kids care or really notice about that mm. because there's a lot of kind of expression and emotion on these kids' faces. Um, and there's this, as with those TV shows had, it's, there's this spirit of adventure in the everyday as well. Like It's the dreams that kids have. What if there was a battle at school? Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's incredible. And you, th- that is something that the kids do really well, like when they kind of fall over laughing on the bed after their first experience with the sword. And it does have that, that kind of fantasy appeal to it. Again, I speak to Joe about it. It's like this idea of fantasy isn't just mm. you know witches wizards yeah. lord of the rings hobbits whatever it's 
it's about having a fantasy about what would your life be like if you were a descendant of King Arthur. And it really taps into this, the film, uh, which is which is a real high point. And you, you briefly mentioned Hobbits there. Uh, I think Lord of the Rings is actually a stylistic touchstone for this film set in South London. <laughs> um, some of the aerial photography, particularly because he makes his way down to Tintagel in Cornwall to um, as that's where Arthur's castle was yes yeah yeah. Um, his keep that the photography along that way it feels so fellowship it's great Um, and I love that kids are going to see a style that is associated with a foreign world or an otherworldly thing like a hobbit and see it applied to them in their school uniform Mm. absolutely that's such a thrill yeah Mm. yeah Um, it's the kind of film that I'm really happy exists for the kids of 10, 20, 30 years down the line to find uh, in the back of something called a DVD cupboard. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, if we want to support more kind of original IPs, this is a great place to start for people to to take their kind of brothers or sisters, family members to it and just check it out because it is something that we haven't seen in a long, long time and it's it's worth supporting. Yeah. and so that is A Private War and The Kid Who Would Be King, which are both in cinemas this weekend. Uh, Sam, you are our correspondent for Curzon Home Cinema. What can people watch if they want to stay at home? Well, as I mentioned earlier, if you're going to see A Private War, I think you should do it alongside Under the Wire. Um, so like uh, Citizen Four and Snowden or Man and Wire and The Walk, these are it's a documentary and the sort of feature film version of that subject that I think work really nicely together and inform each other. So Under the Wire, do check that out. And also... Mechtube, my love, is now uh, released wide in cinemas and you can watch that on Cousin Home Cinema too. I'm really excited about Mechtube, my love. It's a 181 minute long French film from the director of Blue is the Warmest Colour and that sounds really exciting to me. (laughs) (laughs) It really does, seriously. I'm like super pumped. Bonus episode of the podcast featuring Stephen by himself (laughs) talking about that one. Also for 180 minutes. (laughs) Yeah, it's a commentary. It's a running time commentary. Live commentary. In speedos on a beach. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, you can also watch all the BAFTA shorts. So these were the films noted for best live action short and best animated short. Uh, the BAFTAs were last weekend uh, the winner of best live action short was 73 Cows uh, so you can check that out on Cousinheim Cinema Brilliant and uh, if you've got any thoughts on A Private War or The Kid Who Would Be King uh, or any of those Curzon Soho memories that I was looking for last week do let us know by emailing podcast at curzon.com if you hadn't heard last week's show we are celebrating 60 years of Curzon Soho by putting on a few special screenings Uh, we've already showed Gigi and Call Me By Your Name and coming up this weekend uh, it's the remains of the day and we need to talk about Kevin. It's a cinema that I know a lot of people uh, find a special place for in their hearts. I know the new Simon Amstel film, Benjamin, that's coming out in a few weeks, actually shot a few scenes there. And uh, I'm sure Simon would have some wonderful things to say about the cinema. Um, <laughs> but we hope, we hope you do uh, too. So do email us those if you like. and uh, Or you can tweet us at Curzon Cinemas as well. If it's your first time listening to the show, please subscribe. You can do that on iTunes, Acast, Spotify, wherever you get your pods. And if you enjoy it, leave us a review or a comment. That would be wonderful. And if you haven't heard it already, last week in a bumper episode, we spoke to Barry Jenkins, the director of If Beale Street Could Talk, and Kenneth, Sir Kenneth Branner, (laughs) (laughs) about his Shakespeare biopic, All Is True. Next week, we'll be talking about another film that's recently had the documentary treatment, 
on the basis of sex. A couple of weeks ago it was RBG, and now the Ruth Bader Ginsburg story is told in narrative feature form as well, and we're lucky enough to speak to Army Hammer all about it. Until then, though, we will say farewell. You can keep up with us on social media. Follow Stephen on Letterboxd at... Still Hydra yeah, at 815. Not, you said you changed change it. Yeah. I will, I will, but yeah, it's still Hydra 815. Hell Hydra. Yeah, Hell Hydra. And the rest of us, you can keep up in the normal way on Twitter. Uh, Kelly, we can find you at... KS underscore Powell. Sam at... Sam Howler underscore one. And me at Jake H. Cunningham. Thank you so much for listening. Bye-bye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.